Welcome to Common Ground Berlin, a show where we delve into issues that matter to you here in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. We begin this year on a cultural note by bringing you highlights from our collaboration with Goethe Institute on one of Europe's most iconic and eccentric authors, Franz Kafka. Our project marks Kafka's passing 100 years ago while demonstrating why he still matters today. And as television personality and Kafka sleuth Kathy Diamond tells senior producer Dina El-Sayed, he loved Berlin. But first, let's hear more about Kafka's girlfriend from Kathy. Dina interviewed her via Zoom in San Diego. Are you a descendant of Kafka's life partner, Dora Diamond? I ask because you share a last name with her. That's exactly the question. Are you related to Dora Diamond that started me on the search? And the fact is, I still don't know. I have found her family members and we could do a DNA test, but it's not necessary. It's what started me on my search for Dora. But as I learned more about her, I started to realize that it didn't matter. Her story stood on its own and whether we were related or not was irrelevant. And then once I was able to tell her her story and I found her family and they welcomed us into the mishpocha, we could do the DNA test, but life is a mystery and a great mystery and not all mysteries get solved. And in terms of the book, in terms of her biography that I wrote, it helps that I don't know uh, because in this way, I'm not being accused of glorifying my great aunt or a family member that adds supposed objectivity, (laughs) which really doesn't exist, I have to admit. What can you tell us about Dora Diamant? Well, I first heard her name when I was 19 years old in a German language literature class in college. We were translating the Metamorphosis, and the professor interrupted to ask if I was related to Dora Diamant. Diamant. He wrote her name on the blackboard, and it was spelled the same way. And I, at that time, had not encountered anybody who had the same last name I did. And I had a crush on the teacher, which was why I was in class that day. And so I said, yeah, who is she? And he said, Dora Diamant was Franz Kafka's last mistress. They were very much in love. He died in her arms and she burned his work. A kid behind me, I remember, uh, one a student behind me said, not enough of it. And at the time, I was inclined to agree. I did not get Kafka. I did not understand Kafka. But I wanted to find out if I was related to this woman, Dora Diamant, so I could tell my teacher I was. And I went running to the library. And this was the sort of student I was in 1971. It was the first time I'd been to the library on campus. Um, I had not yet found it. It hadn't been necessary. But now it was. I got to the card catalog when they had card catalogs, and I leafed through it. I found Kafka, and there was all this information on Kafka. He was famous. I had no idea. Uh, One of the world's greatest literary geniuses who had changed literature. And when Dora was mentioned in his biographies, she was 19 years old, the same age I was. And she was, by all accounts, a fierce, independent, intellectual, 
uh, loving, generous, beautiful young woman who captured the heart of one of the most important writers of the 20th century. So I wanted to be related to her. And that began my search for her. What I discovered along the way is she was indeed an extraordinary human being. She was brave and courageous and forward thinking in a time when few women were able to be. She was generous, loving to a fault almost. And as one of her friends once told me, Dora understood human nature and made allowances for all. So her character was really extraordinary, but it was her life experiences that made her biography necessary. Kafka has been called representative man. Well, Dora is, I think, representative woman. She lived for the first half of the 20th century, experienced two world wars and made, as she says, made of herself a person. Is it fair to say that she was Kafka's muse? And do we know what she thought of his works? She didn't care that he was a writer. It didn't matter to her other than it was important to him. And as she said, it was the very breath he took that writing was what he had to do. And she supported that. When Kafka was with Dora, his writing changed in that he always needed to be completely alone when he wrote. But with Dora, he wanted her in the room. He wanted her there. And then he read out his work to her after he wrote it. And as Dora says, he never explained, except one time in one story that he wrote while they were together, the burrow, De Bao, he told her that she was the castle keep in that story. She was his safe place. Up until Dora, Kafka didn't think it was possible to marry and be a writer. The societal conditions at the time prohibited uh, that kind of artistic leaning. But with Dora, it was possible that she made it possible for him. So in that way, I think she was his muse. One of the stories that was written while they were together, A Little Woman, is about their landlady, who was really ghastly. And he writes for pages about how ghastly she was to him, that if he were cut up into a thousand pieces, that she would hate every single piece of him, that she just detested him. And uh, there have been Kafka scholars who have come along who say that Kafka was really writing about Dora, that Dora was the little woman. And that's part of what Dora's had to face, not just disrespect, but she was ignored. Scholars didn't like what she had said about Kafka, that he was a born playmate, usually cheerful, always ready for a joke. That didn't go along with their ideas of how his literature had been formed and the meaning of his literature. And so... I was told over and over again that Dora wasn't <laughs> real, that Dora didn't know what she was talking about, that she was hysterical, that um, that we just really couldn't count on anything she had said. And that was why writing her biography rather than just the love story, which was what attracted me, but telling her whole story became necessary to rewrite her back into history, to make sure her name was spelled correctly, to make sure she got the credit for giving Kafka the happiest year of his life. You founded the Kafka Project in Berlin. Tell us more about that project and why you started it. 
The Kafka Project was born in 1996 when I was working on a screenplay version of the story. I kept trying to tell Dora's story in whatever method I could and whatever format became available to me with the skill set I had. And I didn't have, I had already written a play about Dora and I had submitted it for contests and it had won a couple of contests. But generally the criticism was that it didn't really have an ending. The story in the play ends when I find Dora's unmarked grave in London and I place stones spelling out her name and I promise her that someday I'll write a book about her and someday I'll place a memorial here. She won't be buried in an unmarked grave. So I needed to come up with an ending that was more complete. And I was working on the screenplay with a partner and I called my sister to wish her a happy birthday. And she said, oh, I'm so glad you called. I had a dream about you and Dora last night. And it was the strangest dream. It was just you and Dora. And she kept saying the same thing to you over and over again. She kept saying, it's all about the papers. Find the papers. And Trudy said, in the dream, I kept repeating what papers? And Dora kept repeating, it's all about the papers. Find the papers. She said, I have no idea what it means. And I said, I do. I had read an article a couple of years earlier in Newsweek magazine about uh, how after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall, archives, basements, bunkers, attics, mines were being uncovered, stacked to the ceiling with documents and insurance policies and artwork and gold that was possible to be recovered by the owners. So I filed a petition with the German government for the return of Dora's possessions that were confiscated by the Gestapo in 1933. What was confiscated from her was 35 letters that Kafka had written to her and up to 20 notebooks that he had kept in the last year of his life. So this really does comprise the last year of his writing. When Kafka died, Max Brode, his friend and literary executor, started gathering everything together for publication. Dora knew Kafka didn't want his diaries or his letters or the stories that weren't finished or the novels that weren't finished published. So she kept what she had and she lied. She said she had burned everything, but she hadn't. She had kept things secretly for nine years from 1924 until 1933, when the Gestapo raided her house. She was working as an agitprop actress for the German Communist Party, fighting the Nazis. And the first group that were illegal under the new Nazi regime in Germany were the communists, the political uh, opponents to Nazism. And so her flat was raided and every scrap of paper taken. At which point she confessed her lie. She called Max Brode and let him know that it was all gone and it needed to be recovered. Max then mobilized the cultural attache in Berlin, a Czech poet by the name of Kamil Hoffman. He went to the government and asked for the return of Dora's possessions and was told that the mountainous stacks of papers confiscated in the early days of Nazi rule made it impossible to locate any specific document. And because Camille Hoffman and Jew was Jewish, and so was Kafka, and so was Dora, and so was Max Brode, they were not encouraged to continue the search. 
After the war was over, Max Brod, who had escaped to Tel Aviv now, worked with a German scholar, a young man, uh, Klaus Wagenbach, and they continued the search, which lasted until the Iron Curtain descended. Before that happened, they were informed by the chief of police in Berlin that Dora's possessions had been taken probably by train transport out of Berlin for safekeeping during the Allied bombing and were stored somewhere in Silesia, Silesia. So that was where their search ended. And after the collapse of the wall, now it was possible to research again. So when Trudy told me about her dream, I thought those are the papers. Those are the papers that now can be recovered. So I wrote to the Kafka estate in London, England, and asked them if I could begin the search again, pro bono, on their behalf, and I got a letter of permission. And with that, I started forming the Kafka project. Uh, I found an academic home at San Diego State University, and I formed an advisory committee, and I petitioned the German government for the return of Dora's possessions under the issue of Holocaust-era assets. And uh, I started the search when the German government accepted the case and said they would be looking at it at the summer of 1998. I planned four months to be there for the opening of the case and the closing of the case and to do whatever I could around it. So I spent four months in 1998. And I found the confiscation order of Dora's property. And I found other documents that encouraged me and not just encouraged me, the German government told me, okay, this is real and don't give up. It's going to be years before um, all the archives are uncovered and cataloged. In 2008, I returned and this time concentrated in Poland, the Czech Republic and in Eastern Europe. I visited archives, universities. We had a Kafka project alert describing what was missing, who it belonged to, and we disseminated that all throughout three countries. And then in 2012, after hitting block after block after block, I got a residency at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. as an Eastern European scholar. And I was researching laws and policies surrounding captured German documents after World War II. And what I learned was there was nothing left in Eastern Europe, Everything had been taken that the Americans didn't get was taken uh, by the Red Army to Moscow. So we had to look to Moscow. But there was good news in that Moscow started returning uh, these confiscated documents starting in the 1960s, sometimes even in the late 50s, started returning them to Germany, to the East German Communist Party, hoping that there was some material in there that would help them route out traitors. And um, with that, we knew that we needed to find one of these archives that had been returned. And we did. In 2013, we located a secret archive that was named 9-11, uncatalogued and in Berlin. At that point, German researchers took over. Um, I gave them the lead. Dr. Hansgerd Koch took the lead and became very frustrated that the Ministry of Culture would not fund this research. And frankly, I understand why not. I mean, it's a can of worms. There's all sorts of issues when you start to open up archives like that. 
um, restitution, criminal activities. It just could be a horror show. So there's not a whole lot of interest or um, push to open these files, except from people like me and Dr. Koch and others who want to know what happened and what's in them. So uh, Dr. Koch has to finish the final edition of the critical, uh, the critical edition of Kafka's letters. And so we have a new director in place, Dr. Christoph Geis, who is absolutely perfect for the job. He's now working in Koblenz in the archives there. And that's where the Kafka project stands right now. We have found many, many things. <laughs> I found Kafka's hairbrush. Not that that helps <laughs> find the documents, but we have found things that no one knew about. And it has changed the Kafka story. It has changed the story of his life, how, how he died and how he lived his last year. So the search is continuing. It's not over. Uh, the more we look, the more we discover needs to be found. Now there's 75 letters that Dora wrote to Max Broad over a 25-year period that are also missing, that we're also looking for. So the search, while it's as complete as it can be, only leads to new questions. And what's special about these manuscripts that you're trying to recover? What do they tell us about Kafka? What can they tell us about Dora? What secrets are you trying to reveal? Well, Kafka is famous for being a failed lover. You know, he was engaged twice to Felice, and that didn't work out. The relationship with Milena Zuzanska didn't work out. It's always the story of how he just couldn't find the right gal. And the fact is he did. It was just too late. Max Brode said that the irony of Kafka's life was that he had not met Dora sooner, for that if he had, his will to live would have been stronger sooner. The 35 letters that Kafka wrote to Dora that are missing represent his happy love affair. So instead of the longing and the unhappiness that he experienced in the other letters that people read and cling to and think of Kafka, the letters to Dora would have been completely different, would have been filled of hope and possibility. Dora describes in one of the letters to Max Brode that is still missing but we have those letters cataloged in the 1980s. So we know what was in those letters in terms of when they were sent, uh, what the address was she sent them from, uh, whether it was a postcard or a telegram or a full four-page letter. In the catalog, there are little notations of what was in those letters, if it was meaningful. Um, the day her apartment was raided by the Gestapo, she wrote... All of France, things are gone. The Gestapo took them. There's just three or four sentences from a four-page letter. So in terms of finding those missing Kafka papers, Dora's letters that are supposedly in Israel now that are still missing would help find those. So that each piece is a clue to a puzzle that could fill out the edges where we don't have it. We would also see a different Kafka who was writing finally, freely, um, who was living the life he had always dreamed, a free life in Berlin. His dream was to live the free life of a writer in Berlin. And we would have seen that. We would see the evidence of that. And in the absence of it, the final chapter of Kafka's story still has not yet been told. 
Are you still hopeful you'll find these manuscripts a quarter century after you began your search? Well, this is one of the reasons I knew that Dr. Geis was right for the job, when he told me that he didn't expect to find anything. Of course, we have to have hope, but we can't depend on that as the reason for our search. The search is important in and of itself. Um, I don't know if we're going to find anything, but it's not important to focus on that. It's more important to focus on taking the next step. Okay, if I'm going to be totally honest, yes, we're going to find the things. I do believe that. It may not be in my lifetime, but they are going to surface and they will be protected because of the work we have done and that we have built so much knowledge about these letters that they exist. So when they are discovered, people will know what they are. They won't be thrown away. They will be counted as the treasures they are. My job has been to lay the groundwork and to put the right people in place to find them. Berlin is a central focus of your project. What do you reckon Kafka would think of Berlin today? I think what Berlin represented for Kafka and for Dora was a place where anything was possible, where you could be authentically yourself. And as long as that's still true in Berlin, and I think it is, I think they would still feel at home there. Dora was, as she wrote in one of her letters, intoxicated by Berlin, that she just walked around when she first arrived in a daze, so amazed by the freedoms and the mixing of cultures and ideas and people. should keep Franz Kafka's original writings has been debated by individuals in courts since his death a century ago. But in recent years, one library came up with a modern-day solution that makes his original writings available to anyone with access to the Internet. My guest, Stefan Litt, will tell us more about that. He is a German-Israeli curator, historian, and archivist at the National Library of Israel. I reached him via Zoom in Jerusalem. Stefan, to the casual reader, it doesn't appear Kafka attached much significance to the fate of his personal papers after his death. Is that true? Well, that's uh, partly correct, I would say, and partly maybe wrong, because if he would have been so careless, as you just mentioned right now, he would probably not have taken care for the fate of his papers after his death. But uh, we know that he left two handwritten notes uh, so-called testaments that he addressed to Max Brod, to his close friend, where he asked him to collect all of his papers from friends, from different places, offices, home, and so on and so forth, and um, not to read them and to burn them. So I wouldn't say that someone who does not care about his papers would uh, draft up such a letter, and he did it twice. So I do think that there was... Um, uh, kind of importance to him concerning his own papers. And um, my explanation is that maybe he felt that most of the things that he wrote, all the three unfinished novels and his diaries and many short stories he never published, 
he first and foremost actually wrote them down for himself because he kind of uh, struggled with so many different uh, issues in the world and in everyday life that confused him. And that was his way of uh, getting a therapy. And uh, maybe he correctly, I would say, felt that these papers are really very personal and very special. As you mentioned, his friend Max Brod ended up with uh, these papers. Who was he exactly? Uh, both of them met when they were students in Prague University. Actually, Kafka was a year ahead because he was one year older than Max Brod. And uh, nevertheless, they met being uh, students, young students in law. And uh, they were um, showing up at uh, different events and not connected at all to the university, of course, about philosophy, literature and uh, things people did more than 100 years ago. Actually, they they started a conversation and a discussion and uh, felt pretty much intellectually pretty much attracted to each other. And there were, I would say, pretty different personalities and characters because uh, Max Brod was um, one who had hardly any doubts about his qualities in literature, in uh, music. Max Brod was also a composer. And uh, literally, whenever he finished uh, a piece, a short story, or even a novel, he would never hesitate to publish it right now. And uh, he was quite a successful author, actually, when he was alive in pre-war Europe. That was exactly the opposite with Franz Kafka, who was so full of doubts about his uh, literary production and hesitated all the time whether what he wrote would even be worth printing it and um, not mentioning uh, that others would read it or wanted to read it because he was absolutely not sure about his qualities. But Max Brod was deeply convinced that Kafka is a brilliant author. And he is the one, actually, who pushed Kafka all the time during his lifetime to finish his works, to publish them, to release them with publishers. And he was the one who decided at the end not to obey the letters that Kafka left him, asking for burning all those materials. So he did collect all of them, but then he did exactly the opposite and published everything, literally everything. And uh, by doing so, Max Brod, in fact, made Kafka the author, the world author that we know for many decades now, and uh, who is without any question one of the most important authors of the 20th century. So where were all of these manuscripts and personal papers located um, after Franz Kafka died? I mean, where did Max Brod find them? In one of these wills that Max Brod, uh, sorry, Franz Kafka left, he pointed out that there are several places, first um, at his parents' home, in his office and uh, with friends and so on. So Max Brod indeed um, came to all those places, also contacted um, friends of Kafka who had in their hands uh, manuscripts, letters and so on, and he collected everything. So all these materials were with him until 1939 in mid-March when Max Brod left Prague because he understood that there's no way staying there because of the threat that the Nazi Germans would um, invade into Czechoslovakia, what they did exactly the same day when he left. And he, together with a common friend of Franz Kafka, whose name was Felix Welch, both of them with their wives immigrated to Palestine. And uh, Max Brod had uh, only very few suitcases with him on his way here. 
And in one of these suitcases were all the writings of Kafka. So he took them with him on the train, on the ship to Palestine, where he came in late March 1939 to Tel Aviv. And uh, he settled down there in Tel Aviv. And in the beginning, he had all those papers at his home. And in 1940, I believe it was that uh, during World War II, Tel Aviv was bombed by the Italian Air Force. So he became anxious about the fate of those precious materials. And he asked the publisher, Simon Schocken, who came also from Germany and uh, founded the famous Schocken Publishers in Germany, um, who had a private library here in Jerusalem. The building still exists. It's a beautiful building, and it's built state-of-the-art for the 1930s as a library building with closed stacks, underground stacks. And Max Brod asked him to get a safe, actually, a vault uh, downstairs to deposit all these materials. And uh, Schocken agreed because he was the publisher who held all the world rights of Franz Kafka. He bought them from Kafka's mother in 1934. So they stayed there for roughly 15 years. And from time to time, when needed, Max Brod uh, had access to those materials because he was the editor of Kafka's works, beginning in immediately after Kafka's death until the mid-1950s. By then, all of Kafka's works have been published. Then we had... Um, in between the 1948 independence war of Israel, which um, passed over the library building of Schocken in, in Jerusalem without any harm. But then there was the next crisis in 1956, and both Schocken and Max Brod became again anxious about um, the question whether Israel in general is a good place to keep those materials. So they decided to transfer them to a bank vault in Zurich in Switzerland. And since 1956 until, uh, let's say, the early 1960s, most all of those materials were in Switzerland. Then uh, in the early 60s, uh, Max Brod had established contact with Kafka's heirs. Kafka had, as we know, three sisters. All of them were murdered in the Holocaust, but their children survived. And uh, they knew, of course, Max Brod. He was... Uh, Uncle Max for them, and they re-established their contacts. And uh, they also asked several times, apparently, what about the uh, manuscripts? Because they knew that on the one hand, Broad was obliged to collect all of them, but uh, it was absolutely sure that Kafka never said that all of them would belong to Max Brod because he wanted him to destroy them. So they most likely argued something like, Uncle Max, you helped us that all these materials survived, but uh, very nice of you, but they are not yours. So please return them to us. There were a couple of items among them that Max Brod was able to prove that Kafka had given him as a present. For example, the complete manuscript of the novel The Trial, Der Prozess, in German. And almost all of the drawings and scribblings that Kafka made during his uh, years. And several other um, pieces, short stories, sketches, literary sketches, and so on and so forth. And uh, But the main bulk was given by Brod back to the heirs, and uh, they decided to deposit them in Oxford at the Bodleian Library, where they are since 1962, I think. 
until today. And uh, this is the biggest Kafka collection worldwide in Oxford. Some of them, though, eventually ended up back in Israel. Was this then Max Brod's collection? And Yes. Uh, okay, go ahead and exactly. tell me about that. Yes. So everything that uh, he was not forced to return to or to restitute to the heirs, he kept for himself. But most of these items, again, he decided that Zurich most likely would be a better place to have them there. And uh, we also know that in the early 1940s, he met a lady who also came from Czechoslovakia, a Jewish lady with her family, immigrated as well to Palestine, whose name was Ilse Esterhofe. And she became Max Brod's private secretary. They uh, had a very uh, deep relationship, and uh, she apparently showed great interest in Max Brod's work as an author, his editorial work concerning Kafka, and also concerning the materials. So for a reason that we cannot 100% determine what it was, Max Brod decided to give all Kafka's manuscripts remaining in his hands and letters and drawings and so on as a gift to this secretary. And he did that twice, uh, in the late 1940s and in the early 1950s. So there's a deed of gift, two deeds of gift, actually, saying that after his death, all these materials will uh, absolutely belong to Mrs. Hoffer. But there was one step that was never made to make sure that this deed of gift is um, valid in a legal way. You would have been obliged to go to a notary or something like that in order to get the confirmation of this deed of gift. And they never did that by sorting and arranging Max Brod's personal archive, I found a handwritten note uh, that he left to Mrs. Hoffer saying that, well, we still have to go to the notary in order to make this deed of gift valid 100%. So they were aware about it, but they never did it. And uh, that was uh, the big question uh, concerning the papers of Kafka when it came to the court case. But between that, uh, in 1968, Max Brod died and he left um, his last will in German. And uh, there you had this paragraph 11 uh, saying that his secretary, Ilse Esterhofer, will be the executor of his will and will also be responsible for his papers. And she had to make sure to transfer these papers to a public library or archive. And he mentioned actually two places. The first place was us, the National Library in Jerusalem. The second place was the Municipal Library in Tel Aviv or any other place or library that Mrs. Hoffer would think would be appropriate. In Israel. Now, I think he even pointed out that possibly also outside Israel. After um, saying all this, he added this last sentence that beyond that, she is free to decide whatever she thinks would be the right way to treat those materials. So that was kind of a carte blanche. And uh, as we know, she very soon started to sell away the most precious items, which is most likely not exactly what both intended. I don't know. So from at least from 1972, we have proof that she began selling Max Brod's uh, or letters by Kafka to Max Brod, short uh, drafts and manuscripts by Kafka, and she uh, would do over the years the same time and again. And she also sold interesting uh, letters that Max Brod received from his contemporaries. For instance, more than 40 letters he received from Stefan Zweig and uh, 
other similar materials, which was definitely not the intention of Max Bolt, because by doing so, she actually made uh, damage to the whole picture of the written estate of Max Bolt. We know also that there were negotiations between her and the National Library in the 1980s about transferring the main bulk of Bolt's archive to the National Library, not Kafka's materials, because she was convinced that they are hers. And by the end, she never did anything beyond selling most precious items. So the, the Big Bang was actually in 1988, when she decided to sell the manuscript of the famous novel, The Trial, in Sotheby's in London. Well, she was quite successful because she got $2 million by then, which is uh, also even today uh, quite a lot of money. And uh, 40 years earlier, it was even more. So the manuscript was in the first place bought by a, a private donor who the same week donated it to the Literature Archive in Marbach, which is fine because it's a public institution and state of the art and they know how to treat these kinds of materials. Tell us how we got to the court case. I mean, in the end, how were you able to get this this uh, collection or what parts yes. of the collection were you able to get back to the National Library? The situation became interesting again when Mrs. Hoffa died in 2006. According to the Israeli um, rules, um, the family or the heirs of someone who just passed away have to go to the family court and ask to release the testament to make it valid in a legal way. So they went, but then the library stepped in and said, no, sorry, we know that there's still an issue unsolved uh, from Mrs. Hoffer because she actually never fulfilled the will of Max Bord. And that's why we do not agree that all these materials, which are still in her hands, will just uh, be given away to the next generation because uh, there's something absolutely unsolved from our perspective. And um, in 2008, the court case began, and uh, it took more than a decade. And three different levels of courts up to the Supreme Court in Israel dealt with the same question, who is the owner of Max Bolt's papers and including Kafka's papers? Because the library lawyer said, well, the, the deed of gift never got uh, 100% confirmation by the legal authorities in the 1940s and 50s, and that's why the gift is not valid, actually. So these papers are still part of Max Bolt's personal archive. In all the courts, the National Library unanimously um, got 100% uh, what she wanted. So all of the judges involved decided in favor of the library. And by the end, in uh, 2019, we were able to collect the last and most important and most precious part from the mentioned um, bank vaults in Zurich, where still the Kafka papers were kept over the decades. But did you get and the manuscript of the trial back? No. The courts in Israel also said, what happened, happened. Okay. Unfortunately, but we do not touch this again because it will make a lot of noise and unnecessary conflict. And uh, we never asked to get it back. And um, that's fine, because we are convinced as long as it is in a, not in private hands, where you would not have access to it, but in a public institution, that's fine for us. And uh, still, we, we uh, received quite a bunch of materials, int very interesting materials, uh, early sketches of a novel, of course, unfinished, because Kafka uh, did not like to finish his novels. The wedding preparations in the countryside, it was called, and uh, we have more than 100 drawings and sketches. 
we have more than 200 letters he sent to Max Brod, which is really a, a nice uh, group of correspondence. And uh, we also have a notebook filled with Hebrew exercises from 1922, apparently, which proves that uh, Kafka was quite advanced in Hebrew. And this is, of course, something that thrills the Israeli public, uh, because it was rarely discussed before that Kafka did show deep interest in that language and uh, was able to, to read and write and even to talk as his contemporaries witnessed. In 2021, your library decided to make these works available online. Is this the only online collection of Kafka that you're aware of? To the best of my knowledge, yes. <clears throat> there are two other main collections. The one I mentioned before in uh, Oxford. And we know that they uh, did digitize their materials. But as far as I know, they are not available for free online. And the other uh, bulk is in the German Literature Archive in Marbach. And uh, I also think that they did not make any progress in making accessible these materials. So my last question is, what do you think Franz Kafka would have thought about having an online collection, considering that he initially wanted his works or his letters to be burned? Yes, that's a question that uh, I was asked several times. And that's also, of course, a, a question of ethics. The first we should have asked was uh, Max Brod, and he was indeed asked um, what about the fact that he, in a way, betrayed his best friend? And he said, yeah, that's a dilemma. Uh, on the one hand, you have uh, the last will of your best friend. But on the other hand, you see that you would destroy first-class literary material, and you can't do that. And um, I think we simply should follow with uh, Max Brod's thought in that way. To access Kafka's works online through the Israel National Library, go to nli.org.il and then in the search field type in Kafka Manuscripts, or you can also Google it on the Internet. Hans Kafka turned the life of our next guest on its head, but in a good way. She is Swiss-born figurative abstract artist Marianne Kolb. I interviewed her via Zoom in Sacramento. I was born in a little town called Brugelbach, and it is about 10 kilometers uh, west of Bern. It has the same amount of houses like when I grew up. So tell me some more about your family life. Was your upbringing strict? Yeah, it was very strict, sort of Germanic upbringing, you know. And my parents uh, were farmers, and my brother ended up taking over the farm. And so that's how I grew up, even though it's, it was only about 10 kilometers away from Bern, it felt incredibly isolated. Were you the youngest child? Uh, I have a brother who is older, a year older, and two younger sisters. Can you elaborate on some of the challenges of your childhood? Well, it was patriarchal. Switzerland was or is a patriarchal society still to some degree. And basically what my dad said, you know, that was the rules and you couldn't argue with it. He had a temper he could fly off the handle, you know, like in seconds. And then he was wondering five minutes later, 
you know, what was happening, why we were all kind of like walking on eggshells of a sudden, because that was sort of the dynamic. You've spent most of your adult life as a painter, but did you paint when you were a child? No, it was when I came to the United States that I was introduced to the art world. We'll talk more about your life in the United States in a bit, but let me first ask you about when you were in school in Switzerland. What did you dream of doing when you grew up? Uh, I think initially I wanted to become a teacher, but that kind of was very strict. You know, the school was three rooms, first through third grade. That was one room. And then from fourth to, I think, seventh grade or eight, uh, uh, sixth grade. And then from seventh grade to ninth grade, that was another room. It was all very small, you know, just local kids. And at one point I had home economics. It was for girls. So you would learn how to knit and all kinds of stuff like that. And the teacher was very, very strict. You had to do this in that year, then this the next year. And then she had a nervous breakdown. And when she came back to school, was allowed back into teaching, um, <laughs> she just let the class go wild. We could do whatever we wanted to. And That made me at one point think about becoming a teacher. And in my last year, I tried to sign up for it or register for it to go to school for that. And I was too late. So I gave that up. And then I became a telephone operator for the only telephone and communications company in Switzerland. It was called PTT. It was connected to the post office. And that's what I ended up doing till maybe I was 18 or 19. And that was strict too, you know, the supervisors that wore like aprons and you couldn't talk. I mean, it was just crazy the way they behaved, you know, to today's standards. They wouldn't get away with that kind of stuff. So not the Switzerland everyone is escaping to in The Sound of Music. And not quite. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was my education. Usually what it ended up leading to was to become uh, the operator, basically the operator for a company that would direct all of the phone calls. It's not quite a secretary, but it's just like you take the phone calls, you direct them, you have other kinds of jobs to do. That's usually what it was. And that's what I ended up doing at one point. Were you happy? Not at all. I should maybe tell you a story when I was about six years old, something like that. My mother would take us on the train, go to the city. It was about twice a year to buy new clothes. And then at one of those trips, we boarded the train. We went into our compartment and the opposite compartment was a young black man And I must have just stared at him. I had never seen a Black person before. But what it did to me was there was a bigger world out there. 
and I needed to know. And I think that was sort of the first time that I realized that we were sort of isolated and that there was a bigger world out there. How did you come across Franz Kafka's works? So at one point I went to business school for about a year and that gave me a job as a wholesale buyer at Mercure, which is a company that used to have about 100 retail stores and about 20 restaurants all over the country. So I became the wholesale buyer for all of the goods that they needed. And it came into a warehouse at the headquarters, and then it would get distributed. And I ended up being in charge of four people in that office. And one of the women, she was probably, I would say, almost 20 years older than I am. She was a divorcee, Catholic, and that was an absolute no-no. At the time, a lot of women who got divorced didn't end up with anything. And so she had three kids. And she needed a job. So she put herself through those apprenticeships. And I worked with her and she sensed that I was really unhappy. And that's when she said at one point, I think you should read Kafka. Had you heard of him before? No, not at all. And one of the lunch breaks, I went to the bookstore and I bought Metamorphosis or Differandlung. And it just blew my mind. It just, I could really relate to the bug, you know. (laughs) So I think it was the last push to make a decision to go to the United States, which I always wanted to do ever since I was maybe 13, 14 years old. But this book inspired you to do that. Right. That was sort of the last push. You know, it was almost like, maybe you should try to just go and see what happens. You read Metamorphosis in German, correct? Yes. Was there a particular passage or section you recall connecting with? No, it was just the oppression that Gregor felt, right? Being locked up in a room. And that's what I really kind of felt growing up that as a girl, you didn't really count for much. It was a harsh reality of the time, to be sure. And I'm wondering, do you see other parallels with Kafka? I mean, he had a really tough relationship with his dad, so I'm wondering, do you draw parallels to your own life? Oh, yeah. I always felt like I didn't fit in, that they were not part of, they didn't smell like me. I mean, I'm serious about the smell thing because it was just, there was something not right. And after, you know, going through therapy here in this country, it was just like she ended up telling me at one point as a six, seven year old, you don't have the vocabulary to express yourself. And then she said that other senses kick in. I don't know whether that's true, you know. But I certainly felt like I didn't fit in in school. I'd always sit by myself, even though the tables were for two kids. Yeah, it was just awkward. My father was very, very strict. So those are the parallels, you know. It was just a a really difficult. He was a man of his time. 
That's just the way it was. As you mentioned, Kafka inspired you to immigrate to the United States, but why the West Coast? Well, I went to the American Embassy in Bern. You had to sign up for an ESL program, English as a Second Language. And I picked the cheapest one, and it happened to be in Berkeley. I mean, I could have been in any other state, right, of the United States, and things could have turned out completely differently. But it was in Berkeley, and they gave me a student visa for five years. The plan was to go for six months for ESL to learn English and then travel back across the country for six months and then go back to Switzerland. But that ended up not happening, ended up overstaying my visa. It was in 1983. You know, that kind of stuff wouldn't happen today. It's much more strict. Did you become an American citizen eventually? I ended up getting my green card. And then in 2001, I think, uh, I got divorced. But we ended up waiting for me to get the citizenship. I'm sorry if I sound like the INS. <laughs> no, I was I was legitimately married for 15 years, you know, so it wasn't like one of those uh, getting married for a green card or citizenship. So did you begin painting in the U.S. right away when you moved to Berkeley to get your language training? So what happened was the night before I left Switzerland, my cousin who was at the equivalent of the MIT in Zurich, where he met American students there. And at one point, they had a party, and they exchanged addresses. And, you know, like you do, if you ever come to the States, you know, come look me up. And um, the night before, he came to my house and said, well, if you get in trouble... Here is an address. So I landed in San Francisco and no, actually, no, it was in Oakland. And I had no idea where I was. The same night, I hooked up with a couple of guys and we stayed in a hotel in San Francisco. And the next day, I ended up walking to Fort Mason to the youth hostel, and I was completely lost. I couldn't speak English, so I had a little dictionary that I used to look up words and show them to a clerk if I wanted something. And so I ended up calling that number I got, and the woman who answered was like, well, uh, you can come stay with us, but you have to take part. And I was like, What's Bart? You know, like the train. <laughs> and so she ended up picking, she, she picked me up. And then I went into that household. It was a big house. And there were all young people, about six of them were just living there. And I ended up becoming really good friends with, uh, who's still my friend, Tim Keyworth. And she grew up in a household that was art-oriented. And we ended up making stained glass mirrors, kaleidoscopes, and 
the basement of that house. And at one point she said, well, you should take a life drawing class. If you can draw the human figure, you can do anything else in terms of design. And at one point she asked for my drawings to see them. And she said, you ought to paint. And that's when I signed up for a painting class at what was called CCAC, California College of Arts and Crafts at the time. And I was lucky enough to have a teacher by the name of Lee Himes. It was just like, you know, a light bulb went off in my head. And I can't describe it any other way. And I was going to pursue that. So that takes me to my last few questions about Franz Kafka, who helped you change your life. Do you think his works are relevant to people's lives today? Well, if they can change my life, they can change other people's lives. Is it because we are all isolated? Is it difficult to sort of find society, if you will? Yeah, and I think it's even stronger now than it used to be. Certainly, I feel like the pandemic has made us uh, isolated, even more so than we were. And it's hard to make friends or build a community. You have to really look for it. Uh, It's even with artists, you know, everybody is sort of separated and things seem fragmented to me that we could come together in another way. So I think somebody like Kafka can really shine a light on that if one takes the time to process it. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and thank you for listening to Being Kafka, produced by Goethe Institute and Common Ground Berlin. You can learn more at goethe.de forward slash Kafka. Be sure to join us next week when we bring you more Franz Kafka-related interviews. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and our social media editor is Noor Trabelsi. Our podcast is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. And our partners are Goethe Institute, the Checkpoint Charlie Foundation, and German Marshall Fund of the United States. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and X at CG Berlin Podcast. <laughs>